1: Exclusive offers just for you, just to say thanks. Right now, U.S. Cellular customers could get up to
0: $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. Visit uscellular.com for terms and restrictions.
2: Thompson, and you're listening to grill and Jr with the voice of wrestling. Mr. Jim Ross, Jim, what's
1: going on, man? How are you? Life is good. Conrad It's great to hear your voice. It's great to have all the folks with us. Our show is ever growing. And I think that's a deserves a big thank you from all of us here at grill and Jr. We've got a big team that work on our project. This should be, I perceive in my mind's eye. And I just watched this back again this morning as we're recording this. The Canadian stampede is as good as much fun and unpredictability at a, at a paper, WWE pay-per-view that I can remember having. The one that comes closest to mind, you know, the, the the Rock-Hogan match at 18 was extraordinary. Two icons that clicked in different... And they recast their roles walking to the ring. Uh, the WrestleMania 17 in the Astrodome, because it was the Astrodome, and that was a eighth wonder of the world before Andre, uh, was special. It, it brought back to me memories of my dad and I watching the Houston Oilers and coach Bob Phillips, Earl Campbell, the company, uh, on the uh, KJRH channel two in Tulsa back in the day. They carried the AFC games. So, but this, I watched it. And it was just so much fun to go back and watch. And as I was telling you before we started recording, there's so many little nuances that I had forgotten about that were just tremendous to go back and retrieve. So, this should be a fun show.
2: An excellent show. And if you haven't already, you should go out of your way to take a look at it. It went down on July 6, 1997, from the Saddle Dome in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. It does a 0.59 pie rate. So, Meltzer would say that's 1.32 million in pay per view revenue. The show has a paid attendance of 10,974 fans. He says there's 12,151 in the building. The gate's pretty good. 229,000 and change plus another 65 grand in merch, but that's not the story. The story is just how hot the crowd was. The crowd really made this show and, uh, not through the numbers and not through the gate, but through their response. Yeah. Before we talk about that, cause I know that's really the story of the show I want you to sort of give everybody the backstory because last week you referred to this as the Calgary stampede. And I know people who may not be from the area may not understand why, but Calgary had quite the tradition with not only wrestling, but with their stampede event.
1: Yeah. It was a Calgary was always considered by their chamber of commerce as one of their marketing tools. So it was kind of the Texas of Canada, cowboys and oil and horses and rugged outdoorsmen and. You know, a great place for a uh, franchise of uh, farmersonly.com, maybe. But nonetheless, it was a very unique uh, uh, culture there in Alberta. The Calgary Stampede was their annual rodeo that went over several days that included a, a big, like a state fair. And so when we were there uh, for our wrestling event, it was during the Calgary Stampede. So which meant that we were at the arena on the fairgrounds. And so by getting there early and getting our work done or before we started to work, whatever it was, I remember vividly, uh, walking the fairgrounds. Uh, Bruce was with me and Pat Patterson. I'm sure there's another guy or two, uh, that we're hanging with. Just the guys in the office, uh, I remember Patterson, uh, attacking a, uh, a long, hard, uh, Turkey leg. And, uh, that was quite the, uh, sight site for sore eyes should have had a video. Didn't have that kind of stuff back in those days. At least oh, I didn't. So we had fun. We had, we, tra- we, we ate all the bad food that we could probably, our bodies could hold. Everything fried was consumed. There was no Lipitor handy. We just toughed it out like real he-men, uh, in Alberta, but it was great, man. And the fans loved it. They were glad to see us. It was I think it was the first pay-per-view WWE ever did from Calgary. That's right. And Calgary, you know, Conrad was like a was a hub. Calgary was the center of a territory that was a very long term successful territory ran by Stu Hart that started in the late forties, I believe. So it was a, it had tradition, it had roots. And we got to parlay that wrestling tradition along with the amazing tourist attraction of the Calgary stampede all folded into one to have this great pay-per-view and the media there, you know, good Lord. We were getting front page coverage on the daily paper. Wow. I think think the Calgary Sun, I think it was awesome. It was, it was perfect. It was, it was utopia for wrestling fans and I loved every minute of it.
2: Well, we loved it as fans just watching from home. Of course, um, this, this illustrious wrestling history that you touched on, you know, you guys did run a lot of shows there. I guess this is before your time with the WWF with like Hulk Hogan and Sergeant Slaughter on top or ultimate warrior and undertaker. <clears throat> and then you did another big one, uh, Hogan Bundy back in 87. And that one actually still held the record here. 12,000, 3, fans in attendance. Uh, but stampede wrestling used to run the old Calgary Corral. Uh, that's a 7,500 seater. The saddle dome wasn't built until 84, I think. So Stu only ran one show there, but you're right. Stampede wrestling is, is, is sort of the, the undercurrent of this main event. I mean, it, it feels very stampede because there's so many hearts, you know, involved in the match and ringside and things like that. Some of our younger fans may not be familiar with what the heck we're even talking about with stampede wrestling. Catch them up.
1: Well, it was a territory much like when the business, was, when the business was, uh, it's the most healthiest to that point. It was when there were several territories operating throughout North America, for example, and that had a base, uh, like the Calgary territory was based hello in Calgary. Now they didn't only run Calgary. Obviously they couldn't do just that. They ran Calgary, I think weekly or every other week. It was a regular town in quotes, but they also ran Edmonton. Stu Hart's hometown and all these other Canadian little Canadian markets in that area. And spot shows that's what's the benefits for your local high school or whatever. So they stayed very busy. They developed a lot of real good talent. They had a great rapport with the Japanese. The Japanese would send talents there. And Stu was known as a very, uh, strenuous and vigorous trainer, which I can attest to, uh, I'll tell that story later, but it was, a it, he's Stu was a legend as a tough guy, legit and a great teacher of pro wrestling because he didn't deviate too far from reality in his teachings and his doctrine. And if you stop and think about it, that's what you want to have happen when a pro wrestling match ensues. You want the fans watching and all the cynics and the skeptics watching just kind of forget that for a second. Just let it go for a second. And if the application in the ring is well, is well oiled and doing expertly, I might forget to some degree that this is fiction, right? And that's what Stu did. He he factored in reality into his pro wrestling presentation. And when they had the, a, 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 the talent roster that they needed, uh, it's all about talent. Uh, they made, they made good money. There is a very viable territory that a lot of guys went to junkyard. Dog had a big run there, not a, only the big run. He was discovered and brought back to mid South because of Stu junkyard dog. A lot of people didn't know that story, but dog was there very rough and very raw and not really that good, but you could tell he had a great physique and he was a, a very charismatic black man. And, and I don't mean to sound badly here. Like I did my, somebody called me to, to the arms Conrad when I said, uh, uh, Oriental. Uh, i call i use the word oriental in the uh aew show we did it in, in uh
2: what's the name of their promotion
1: yeah i know <laughs> that's right <laughs> is it something it's oriental
2: yeah i mean the name of the promotion is is owe and when you stretch that out that's uh, oriental so I, I agree i've always sort of been of the mindset that uh Hey, I don't think we can say that word anymore, but if that's the I name did. of the promotion, well, by
1: golly, um, well, yeah, think well, I didn't know. Man. I, yeah. I really did. Connor. I didn't do it on purpose. Right. Right. I didn't, uh, I didn't do that to piss people off or to, or to get the little nerds that listen to every single word and live and die by them to get them a, 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 a hill to die on. I, it was just a, a fumble on my end that now I know that Oriental has been, has been t- Marked out and Asian has been marked, has been replaced it has it, replaced it.
2: But in fairness, that's not the name of their promotion.
1: They're not, they're not, <laughs> AWB. that'd be too confusing. Yeah. But goddamn it. Conrad, you're using too much logic. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You're killing a good story here.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, listen, this is one of the most legendary pay-per-views ever. And if you don't take our word for it, certainly you'll take Meltzer's It won the uh, best major show in 1997. Uh, by the folks who have voting power in the wrestling observer newsletter. Let's talk about this thing from your side of the desk. It's a three man announced team, which you've talked about is not always your favorite, you prefer the two and you usually liked yourself and Jerry Lawler. But here, the third man is Vince McMahon. And, uh, of course, famously, uh, we've heard as fans about how brutal Vince could be when he was producing announcers and their headset. Mick Foley wrote about that a lot in his books. What did you think of the three man announced team with yourself, Jerry Lawler and Vince McMahon?
1: Well, from a production standpoint and being produced and somebody in your ear is not off because the guy that would be always in our ear was sitting beside us. And, uh, you know, we, 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 uh, the thing about Vince and Jerry and I, in my, at least in my take is that as far as I'm concerned, it was the best three man team that I worked on. I am still not a major fan, of three man, uh, pro announced teams. And it's like, you know, we, we, we have that at AEW. Uh, hey, it's not a, it's not a reason to strike or to boycott or to have boo-boo face. It's just, if I had my own preference, it'd be myself and somebody else, but that's not what the hand was. That's not the hand that was dealt. And so it, there are them, but I thought, I, I thought Vince and Jerry and I did a nice job, uh, together. We seen, I listened to the show and I was surprised we didn't walk on each other more than we did. That's fundamentally, that's fundamental soundness. Uh, I saw where, you know, there are people that didn't like our call. Meltzer included, uh, of the, uh, uh, Sasaki, um uh, match. Talk of Michinoku and Sasaki. And here's the funny thing about this. I pronounced Sasaki wrong and maybe I did, but guess who told me how to pronounce it? Sasaki. Yeah. Shame on my ass. I'm just, why would I ever believe the human being that's named that to tell me the truth about his name? It's Jesus, you know what? There's the, that deal. But uh, we had a good show, but we had a fun show to work because we had a great crowd to keep our ass engaged. And just like they connect each other, they connect us, they connect the talent. And any restaurant that says the crowd doesn't bother me, I got a job to do. i got, then you're the, you're the shits, pal. Why do once you go find your passion. How can you say that the crowd doesn't affect how you work? That's just a lie. And that's That's being too, you're too goddamn egocentric for your own good.
2: Well, business is way up here, uh, from 1996. And that's sort of, uh, obvious, I guess, based on the sellout and the crowd reaction. But this doesn't feel like a one-off when you look at your average attendance from July of 96, it's 4,773 fans a year later, we're at 6,343 fans. So we're up 32.9%. And that means revenues are up too. your average gate goes from around 78 grand to around 98 grand, and you weren't selling out any shows back in July of 96, but you're selling out about one in five here in July of 97, but ratings sort of remain the same. You know as a business person, what does that say to you Jim when the rating is the same but all your other metrics are up
1: you gotta steer the course uh, all the other metrics <clears throat> pardon me would uh, supersede uh the numbers on uh uh on the television ratings uh i I knew we were on to some good things, but in ninety six is around it might have been late ninety early ninety six 95 or one Vince and I and others were having those conversations about bankruptcy. Uh, and the numbers just weren't, weren't, weren't uh, carrying their share of the water. So consequently we had, we had, a, we had to get a we had to catch a break here and there. And, and the only way you can do that in wrestling is to get some talent over. It's not an impossible feat to get people over. It's not a mystery. And the guys that know, the guys are in position to do it, like to perpetuate that it is a mystery because it makes them more valuable. Right. So, uh, but the bottom line is, you get some talent hot and people talking and people interested in the storylines. If for only one reason, I know that when we started having those sellouts, guess who got hotter than hell? Stone Cold. Right. And people would tune in to watch Monday Night Raw. If nothing else, just to see what antics, uh, Stone Cold was going to do. Sure. So it, it, all that, that's, that's still works today. That's not going to change. Uh, pro wrestling is an attraction driven business that, that more often than not, and I'm going to offend some people by saying this and I apologize if I do, but more often than not, because the regularity of them switching hands and, and lessening their meaning titles mean little in wrestling nowadays. They don't mean nearly as much when you have fewer champions that held the title longer. And we don't get that chance anymore because there's a zillion ways to split our championship focus. And they've got tag chance, I've got more tag chance, you got two women, you got two women, you've got everything. And and I just believe that the more titles, the more watered down they are, and the long and the more often you have title changes. I find it to be almost embarrassing to say that, uh, you know, uh, how many times a person's been a champion. Because you also, by saying that, just documented your losses. Right. I just don't know how it helps anybody. It's, it's an old stat that's kind of run its course.
2: Well, what hasn't run its course is Stone Cold Steve Austin and the Hart Foundation. Of course, uh, Bret Hart and Steve Austin have been on a collision course ever since Bret came back to the company. Uh he announced he was coming back in October of 96 and he was already programmed with Austin. They had a match at Survivor Series and they were off to the races, you know, having the whole screwed thing happen at the 97 Rumble and then they had uh, a match yep. with Vader and the Undertaker at uh In Your House in Chattanooga, the Final 4. And then the classic of all classics at wrestlemania 13 but coming out of there they're still going to be programmed together in angles and feuds and uh, skits on raw all the way until we get to this point now along the way what's happened is stone cold has went from being the most dastardly heel around to now he's a man of the people but that's in america we're in canada Mm -hmm. and uh to counteract these dastardly acts that steve austin has bestowed upon Brett, he's gotten the gang back together. This is the Hart foundation. I enjoyed the most. Yeah. Uh, we've got not only himself and night Hart, but we've got the rest of the gang in there too. We've got the British Bulldog, We've got Owen Hart. We've got Brian Pillman, and this is probably the best work of Brett's career, at least to me, because we're getting impassioned promos every week. And the result is something that I think has never been done before in wrestling, Brett Hart is a super heel in America but the most over baby face in Canada. Has that ever happened before?
1: No. And he was also the most over baby face in Europe and wherever else outside America, that, uh, the WWE television program aired. And for all those years, that's what happens when you're consistently good. And he was, and he didn't get anything given to him because again, the size issue somewhere on the way promoters are going to understand, it, you know, you got a size problem. It may be in your own personal life. Hell, I don't know. Come on. Uh, Bret Hart, too small. That was a story of WrestleMania nine when I, when I debuted, you know, that, that Hogan was not, in, not overwhelmed <clears throat> to have to, uh, put Bret over, uh, or, in, or work with him for the title. So that's, it just was a, it was a sad commentary. Here's what I think <clears throat> again, Conrad, uh, I think that a lot of money was left on the table due to the events of November of 1997, uh, the, the, uh, the old screw job sure. gizmo, because to think that Austin and Bret Hart had run their course is ludicrous. Yeah, they weren't done. They had matches left. It could have been. It could have been, and many still say today that it's right there, that it may be the greatest rivalry in WWE ever because they came along at a time to where the, uh, the hobbles were taken off the horses. Nobody had a bit in their mouth. They could say pretty damn well what they wanted to within logical reason, a different time, different passion. It was real guttural, oftentimes coarse, but I could relate as a fan, as a broadcaster, I could relate to their personal issues. And that's why I said over and over again, personal issues in today's landscape of pro wrestling will far trump and surpass a title match until title matches mean something uh, it's, it's this is where we are, and we're a long way from that happening, in my opinion, uh, Conrad. The titles need to be refocused; need to be fewer of them. I, I need to see the champion fewer, t- fewer, fewer times. Why would I want to see the world title defended every week? It's so, it's so it's like we're exposing our own stuff. It must be not that damn important. Whatever, what other champion defends their title every week? What other world champion defends their title every week? Well, yeah, I'll give that some thought.
2: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us wish we had more time, but time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. Therapy can help everyone be the best they can be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash 10 wrestling today to get 10% off your first month. That's pcom slash 10 wrestling.
0: Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital.
2: Well, there wasn't a world title (coughs) on the line at WrestleMania 13, and that's really where everything changes. There's uh, Ken Shamrock in there as your special guest referee, probably the best double turn in history. And, mm-hmm. and at the end of that night, Steve Austin's the bad guy or the good guy. And Bret Hart is for the first time in a long time, a bad guy. And, uh, he continues to build this stable and along the way they start to rack up some championship gold around this same time. Owen Hart becomes the intercontinental champion. And, uh, we're off to the races.
1: He had Heels with heat. Yes. He had Heels that were over. You had heels that provided great dancing partners to their baby face adversaries and tell me today in any wrestling promotion, uh, that doesn't have red hot heels that are lightning rods. Uh, and if they, who, who are those companies and if, that they had that, how much better would they be? Well, we know the answer to both those questions, no wrestling promotion. Is doing a stupendous job of creating villains right now. Uh, why I, there's a lot of reasons, but they're, they're just not doing it. Who stands out, who stands out as a, as a, this is a legitimate, not potential. Not well. He's going to be good someday, but uh, today a star bad guy who is the straw that stirs the drink and never let anybody convince you otherwise folks, because those great heels make, uh, uh, those great heels have a, a way of, uh, you, you know, of ingratiating themselves to a certain degree, but getting on the radar. And so I don't know any heels in wrestling right now today real heels that are on vividly on radar. And maybe you'll disagree and that's sort of your prerogative. I won't curse you for disagreeing with me for God's sakes, I'm just saying that you got to have more focus on becoming great heels. And man, we had, think about that. God dang, Connor, think about this roster guys, whereas we had five guys in one group that in America, where most of the money was coming from were great villains.
2: And, And they're stacking up the gold, you know, Owen Hart and British Bulldog are the tag champs. We mentioned that Owen had the intercontinental well, uh, British Bulldog has the European and Brett has the world title. So it's almost reminiscent from you know, a little more than a decade prior when the horseman had all the gold and Jim Crockett. So now you've got this heel gang and they've got all the gold. And what do you know? You've got the perfect place to have a pay-per-view Calgary, Alberta, Canada, the, of course, the home of the famous Hart family. Talk Mm -hmm. to me a little bit about when that pay-per-view would have been scheduled. I've always been curious about how the, how much of this is a plan and how much of this is just serendipitous where, you know these guys are getting hot, and now there's a pay per view in this town. When in in the timeline of events would this building have been booked for this event?
1: Uh, earlier than the storyline was probably uh, discovered and, and created and, and uh, cultivated. Because I'm sure it was booked. I'm guessing a year, wow. maybe a little under, maybe a little bit more, because Conrad to get it affiliated in that venue in that building. At the same time that the that the uh, fairs going on and the Calgary Stampede's going on and all that stuff, so you had to kind of get in the mix of promotions and marketing early. Now, once knowing you're going to run the market on this big festive uh, uh, fairgrounds and all these things at this wonderful time of the year for these folks that live there, you, you start planning for something, and you start keeping your eye out. What can we do in Calgary? Well, it doesn't take a brain surgeon. To figure out if you're going to run Calgary, you need to figure out how, how, how can you have the hearts involved? Sure. <clears throat> so that's the first place you start. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, that's the, that, that, I think the, the venue, the time, uh, the connecting with the, the stampede came before any of the creative.
2: So Jim, when the event is sold out like this, uh, there's no opportunity to sell more tickets. So conventional wisdom would say well there's no sense in doing local media but on the other hand you want to come back and you want those you know local media partners to feel like they got whatever they needed for their local station because they're looking for ratings too with you guys being the hot act in town but if there's no opportunity to sell tickets it's not like the local market's probably going to buy pay-per-view do you still try to load up On the media that week, locally? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, Conrad. And sorry to interrupt, but yes, the reason for that is there's momentum in the market. There's a swell in the market, and uh, you want to be caught up in that in every aspect that you can and capitalize. So because, like you said, very astutely, you want to come back. Right. So Calgary even though Calgary was not going was never run in WWE under, under the WWE umbrella, uh, on a weekly basis or biweekly or once a month, even it's going to run three or four times a year. Uh, but you want it to be uh, a healthy market and the way you, you have, you, I told somebody this the other day, some kid asked me for some, for some advice I said, you can't grow healthy unless you plant healthy. So uh, you, you just can't. It don't work that way. It's not, that's not the equation. That's not how, how it changes things. So uh, that's kind of the deal there. You, you, you want to keep the market as healthy as you can. And when you have talents in town, you have no better salespeople than your, your, your talents. Right. So while well, you got them in town, and there's a reason for them being there without, you know, hair-lipping the governor, you, you get their ass out there and press the flesh, and, and then they're building their brand. Cause they got t-shirts for sale and all these different things and tickets to sell and pay-per-views to buy and all that stuff. So everybody can win in this process, but you need to continue to keep your foot on the, on the pedal when you're in town. No doubt about it. And that's right. And we did. And the great thing about this deal was, as I said earlier, the, the, the local paper, only Nettie Neidhart still writes a column for that local paper. And Brett did for years. Uh, so they've always taken wrestling very seriously and respectfully which is encouraging for once. And, uh, so we had a lot of ammunition there, man. So keep firing those rounds. And we did. And it was, uh, it was just a cool experience. Just that the city was so excited. And, and we kind of coattailed in on the, uh, Calvary stampede too. Let's don't get our arms patting ourselves on the back. Uh, that was a special time of the year. It's like Super Bowl week, right. or it's like, you know, it's like something, something happens once a year that, Everybody attends or everybody's got a finger in somehow or another. So there's a connection somehow. And that was all over Canada, Calgary and Canada and a lot of the world. They have amazing travelers to come there for this damn thing. So it's a wild West, old West show and the covered wagons and wagon races and bull riding and all calf roping, all that good stuff. And, uh, handsome young women wearing tight Wranglers, which I specifically enjoyed. (laughs) just saying folks
2: we're on the heels of the king of the ring pay-per-view which we did a few weeks back and uh of course in there we talked about the fact that Shawn michaels quit the promotion of course we know they're going to put humpty dumpty back together again but him quitting is because he's claiming an unsafe work environment and telling Vince, i'll never work for your fucking ass again as he walks out of the building in early june but the original plan was before he walked out, Shawn Michaels was going to be on the other side of the ring. What a night. I mean, this is already an unbelievable environment, an unbelievable main event. What could have been with Shawn Michaels being on the other side, huh?
1: Oh, well, amazing. He's one of the great, great talents of all time. A handful, to say the least, at points of his career, which he will readily admit. So I'm not spreading a, a rumor here. I this is not uh, what do you call your deal? Uh, innu- gossip and innuendo? Rumor and innuendo. Oh, wrong, I'm Sorry, rumor and innuendo. I get. I need to get a t-shirt, I guess. Hey, what about those fellatio shirts? God dang, we're gonna. I get. I getting requests for those. <laughs> While I'm requesting fellatio, they're requesting a shirt.
2: Well, I mean, you've probably asked before, not me, but somebody. <laughs> So what do you think? I mean, could this have been,
1: uh, yeah, missed opportunity, another missed opportunity, man, you can't take Michael Jordan, you can't take magic, you can't take one of the all-time greats out of the game and expect the game to be as good. It's impossible. And the only ones that do that are the ones involved in booking or some of the talents involved themselves that we don't know. This will be fine without Sean. It might be. You might be telling the truth. It might be fine without Sean. Will it be better without Sean? I suggest not.
2: Let's talk about uh, something that happens on June 15th and makes the news. Psycho Sid, Doug Furness, Phil LaFon and flash funk are all traveling uh, from Toronto to Ottawa. Sid's driving a rented Lincoln continental at a speed that's been described as being near a hundred miles an hour. He starts to, uh, fiddle with the sunroof. The car goes out of control. He hits the shoulder of the road and rolls four times about a mile from the Ontario border and the car is destroyed to the point of it being unrecognizable. All four wrestlers are taken to uh, an Ontario general hospital in an ambulance. Eventually everyone checks themselves out, uh, later that night. But the original fear is that Sid is badly injured enough. Uh, that he's not going to be able to work for a while. But it turns out he's just got some cuts and a major headache and obviously a concussion. But he is feeling a little bit of numbness in his arms and legs where he's re-aggravated his back. But Furnace took the worst lick here. Uh, he's got a separated and broken shoulder, and he's going to have to go under surgery two days from then. He actually does that surgery in San Diego just to see, you know, what the extent of the damage is. Lafon gets a concussion and a bunch of cuts and bruises. This is just uh a bad day. Do you get the call yeah. when, when this happens? Or, or, I mean, this, ha- I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often, you know, with guys <clears throat> driving 300 miles a night.
1: Yeah. Uh, probably so. Probably. So but you say the same thing about truck drivers or other people that travel a lot, you know, you wonder how they have so many safe miles considering they have so many chances to screw up. Those guys are very lucky. Very very lucky, you know, I know that there was he don't there with some of those guys in the car because they perceived he wasn't paying attention, so I wasn't there, I don't know, but uh bottom line is they all lived, which is the the value of this conversation and uh but it did screw up some booking and it started you know uh i had I had high hopes that uh that Doug and Phil could contribute to our tag team division uh and that was, it might've been a little bit of a long shot. Probably was You know, as many, but they're very fundamentally sound. They were, they could help young tag teams get better. And you always got to be looking at that. There's always a reason you hire somebody. And sometimes those reasons that is not the fact that you are depending on this hire for this guy or gal to work on top and make a difference. Sometimes it's the fact that guys can make other teams better, for example, in this situation. So, uh, but they're all lucky, man. You know, the, the Sid was the guy that had the most, uh, in juice to him, no pun intended, uh, regarding, um, you know, the, his, where he was upwardly mobile on the card and so forth. And that, that kind of was, was a, was a blow. But the, like I said, the good news is all in the whole damn story is the fact that they could have been four deaths right there. Just as easy as not four guys dead. And luckily none of them were. Yeah. Thank
2: goodness. Um, something that maybe some of our listeners aren't going to say thank goodness about is, uh, it's this era where the WWF hires a new announcer. who's going to do shotgun, uh, with Jim Cornette and, uh, Meltzer would say they don't know anything about him, but they heard that it was obvious. He didn't know much about wrestling and that Cornette was carrying him. And of course we're talking about a very young Michael Cole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who would have been, uh, the guy who, uh, makes the decision to hire Michael. Is that a, is that a Kevin Vince. Dunn call? Okay.
1: Kevin would bring Michael to no physically, but Kevin would bring the idea of hiring Michael Cole to Vince. And uh, at, this will be after interviews and uh screen tests, you know, a little little uh little production over there in one twenty Hamilton. So uh Kevin would say this guy's got what we're looking for, we like him, we want to hire him. Then he'd bounce it by Vince and Vince either yay or nay it. And on this case, Vince didn't have a, have any issues with it. So, and Michael's a Michael's a real good kid. You know, he was a, a legitimate newsman. He's a smart guy. His dad was a state policeman, had a good family upbringing, uh, reliable, you know, just a, a, a good guy. And I was happy to help him all I could. You know, and, uh, I think, uh, you know, when I got sick there and he had to come to, uh, that one time he had to come to my aid and replace me, he did a hell of a good job considering the, the, the situation that he was in. So, uh, but nobody knew where you, you never know when that company and, and the business in general, you live, you live today, prepare for tomorrow as best you can, but don't count on nothing.
2: Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. Uh, the other thing that's coming out of the, uh, wrestling observer is there's some major problems with Sabu and Rob Van Dam backstage. Apparently Sabu was not happy about having to do a double count out with flash funk and Van Dam was supposed to do a match with uh, road dog, Jesse James, on shotgun where Lawler would get involved and Van Dam would wind up being counted out and Van Dam made a comment. Like it would be like Bret Hart going to ECW and losing to one of their job guys. And several WWF officials, particularly Gerald Briscoe, found it insulting that Van Dam would compare himself to Bret Hart. <laughs> and there were a lot of complaints about Van Dam thinking he was a much bigger star than he really was. And Meltzer would say this whole debacle nearly kills the whole WWF WCW relationship completely. But Paul Heyman's ability to play both sides, uh, saves it. And he says that it may be Heyman's game if uh, things go bad and his guys are put in a position to put over w talent then just pull off wwf tv and claim his group was too extreme for the company uh what do you think about the heat on van dam for not doing the planned finish you know I, I guess it is a worthwhile footnote that at this point road dog is not really road dog um he's still uh, an underneath guy he's not part of the new age outlaws he hasn't yet quote got over and and ecw has a a bonafide main eventer in Van Damme. Um, what, 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 was your take on this?
1: Two viable sides of the argument. Both guys got a story to tell. Uh, both of them could, uh, have a decent cases to make, but at the end of the day, both sides, it's like, you want to say, come on guys, really, now let's figure this shit out. This is, this is silly. And I think it was silly. I still think it's silly. Uh, and as far as Meltzer's uh, assessment that he probably got from Paul, that uh, you know this could kill the whole deal, I disagree wholeheartedly. You know, I think we were paying uh, that budget. We were paying around fifty grand a month to help Paul out. Good, you know, no, no, not nobody needs a pound the back for that. It's a business deal. That's what he wanted to do. So That's what we did. And I know because it came out of my budget. So hey, big deal.
2: Hang on, you just dropped some new news there. We've always heard a much smaller, lower number. You're saying it's 50 grand a month, 600 grand a year. You guys were subsidizing ECW.
1: I believe that as I'm, my memory serves correctly. I thought it was, uh, maybe, maybe it's not Conrad. Maybe I, I, I maybe we ought to edit that out. No, let's it was, it
2: in. Let's just get it stirred up. Cause here's the thing. It might be right. And, and nobody's ever provided documentation, but Heyman's right. always claimed one number. Bruce would dispute it and say it was more than that. And the number you just
1: dropped is more than even Bruce would say. So what did Bruce say? I
2: don't remember off the top of my head, but it sure as shit wasn't 50 grand. I'll go find yeah. out.
1: And I might be, I might be a little heavy on that estimate. It's been a long time folks. since I was there, I do know it came out of my budget. I know that we helped Paul for many, many weeks, months, year, whatever, two, whatever it was, but it's not, it was never an issue with us. We knew what we were doing. Uh, we believed in what, that what we were doing was the right thing to do for the business. And our business, more importantly. So, uh, by, uh, it was a lot more money than it wasn't like a grand a week deal. Right. It wasn't that it was a lot more money than that because you're talking about having access to a library, uh, talent. And that was a key thing, you know, having a, having a positive relationship with BCW was, uh, w- was a win-win in a lot of areas, but for us, you know, it allowed us to hire Taz and the Dudleys and, and these other cats, so, uh, and, and other guys, as I mentioned. So, and then Joey styles eventually came on board. So we, and Paul was there and we all, you know, Paul always knew. look, Paul living in there in white Plains is always going he knew he was always in the, the shadow of WWF, WWE. And he also knew that he's so good at what he does. and still does. that he get picked up or u- utilized by them at, at any time. So he, it was a way for him to. Uh, recoup and, uh, cause a lot of, a lot of money had been invested in this company, so I, I looked at it as a win for everybody all the way around, but for like typical wrestling bullshit, uh, it becomes a, uh, you know, a, a covert mission to find out anything, or you shouldn't know, should know this. It was a business deal, right? That's all Connor. a business deal. And it, it was a win, win. We're all involved in the business deal. Now, some of the talent will say, well, I didn't win, win. Well, poor you, goddamn poor you. How much had you invested in it? How much of your money was invested in this business operation? I can tell you that not a goddamn dime. So shut up. If it ain't good, go someplace else. Do something else. Take your expensive resume that you've earned through the years of pro wrestling and shop your resume into the mainstream marketplace. Oh, what? You don't have a resume. That's because you got no more marketable skills than nothing more than taking a snapmare. So take it easy. So that's a, uh, but, but I, I, I want to say it was a, it was a lot, a lot of money. And it, at the end of the day, when, you know, we, we ceased that arrangement. Uh, it was a matter of, we made an acquisition. And so I have I, I, a significant IP. Hey, Paul had a hell of an operation there. And I listened to Bubba Dudley on uh, Busted Open a lot, and you can tell his pride comes out, because, and I don't blame him. I love it. It was us against the world. Right. And when Barry Switzer was at his best at Oklahoma University, it was us against the world. And, and that's the reason Paul probably doesn't
2: want it out there, that you guys have a relationship, because it can't be us against the world if it's really not us against the world. And the people he was trying to sell on that before he sold the fans was the boys. And that's a Tough sell if they know. Well, you're getting a check from them every week.
1: Yeah, Yo, you're getting your money. Our money hasn't changed.
2: Let's talk about a uh, complaint that a lot of the WWF guys who are in the locker room uh, who see Rob Van Dam and and Sabu come in and do their store their style of ECW match. Uh, they're supposedly upset about this double standard because. Mm-hmm. When it comes to ECW, those guys are allowed to come in and do whatever. Sabu can come in and break tables and Rand uh, Van Dam can, you know, work with the guardrail and brawl through the crowd. And the WBF guys are not allowed to do any of that. And some of them are pretty vocal, at least to Dave and saying, well, goddamn anybody can get over if they can break tables and brawl through the crowd and do spots off the guardrail. But we're not allowed to do any of that. What, what say you,
0: what companies would you want to work for?
1: double standard, uh, the, the ones that were complaining, have a, have a legitimate basis for their complaint in my view. Uh, and as you saw over time, uh, the ECW style would, uh, be utilized significantly during the attitude era. We did, they did start coming off the the security railing and the, this and that things got a bit more wide open. The attitude Era's was best when it was a little bit of a wild west show which is exactly what we saw in the main event at, uh, at the Calgary Stampede and post-match that was wild west pro wrestling. That's why it worked.
2: Let's get to the actual show. Of course. Um, this is Brent Hart's first major show back after knee surgery. Probably- and he
1: wasn't ready Conrad, by the way, he was no way a hundred percent. But the the, 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 this event was so personal to him and a lot of his ideas, a lot of this booking was his idea. The, uh, the heart foundation being put back together. And this, this 10 man tag was, I don't want to say it was all Brett, but it was a whole lot of Brett as far as the idea, Brett and Pat Patterson and Pat Patterson never gets the credit he deserves. You don't, here's the thing, folks. Think about this. You got 10 distinct egos to utilize in one performance known as your main event. Ie ten man tag, right? T- ten personalities to appease. Well, I gotta get my shit in. Well, I get my shit in. Well, I gotta, he didn't sell for me. I gotta sell for him. You know, it's like, God, girls, shut up. Put some more lotion on or more baby oil. Go flex your muscles and get a pump. So That's all. Imp- that's what's really important, right? Get a pump in your guns and don't worry about if we entertain the audience. Cause what the hell are they? Well, I know they paid some money to get in. What the hell? It's all about us. It's all about us. So that's what you got to get through. And Pat navigated that sea of egos, and with Brett's help and other guys with like-minded, like Austin. And all of a sudden, you got the they all all the guys came together. They put, by and large, I thought, put their egos aside. And, and, and delivered a hell of a fucking performance. So, uh, I, I, I love that whole show and I'm glad we're getting, getting into it now. Cause it's a, there's some good stuff before that main event.
2: Oh, without question. It's a great show and the crowd is ready for it. You know, we've talked about that for a while here, but uh, I think you even mentioned it earlier. There's lots of front page newspaper coverage. There's an article every single day of the week. Uh, there's autograph sessions for Owen and Brett and Davey. Uh, one autograph session in particular is going to draw eight thousand people. Of. I mean, that's unbelievable. You know that that's like uh, probably what I imagine Hogan was like in '85. I mean, it's unbelievable, especially in a quote unquote downtime, because '97 is not the hottest the WWF's ever been. But you can't tell this Calgary crowd that the the Hart Foundation is not hotter than anything in the history of wrestling.
1: They're ready for it. Oh, they are ready, and this it's made it so wonderful. It's just it's just i gotta tell you i I'm been in this business a long time, and I still get goosebumps before show. I still get pumped up and draw off the crowd that I am working for that night in the in the arena. It has not changed in my life since I started this thing, and now I may appreciate it even more because. I obviously, and this will be happy news to some people out there. I know I've broadcast more matches in my career than I have left. Uh, but the, whatever I got left by God, it's going to be a, everything I can bring. And so I still get that motivation. And that night it was absolutely incredible, just incredible, uh, feel and the out of body experience, as I've said before on shows that this is so special. I just hope that we're getting the audio caught captured and everything is what we need to be so that you at home can feel what we're feeling.
2: Well, we weren't feeling much when, uh, the Godwins beat the new blackjacks. It was five minutes and 32 seconds on the free for all. Uh, the free for all of course is what the company used to do on all of their, uh, pay-per-view channels as like a free appetizer for, Hey folks, don't forget coming up tonight. And then they would promo all the card, throw it backstage, do some interviews with some guys uh, and get the fans who were sort of on the fence about buying the paper you to go ahead and click that buy button. Unfortunately, the match they present gets a dud rating. Uh, He would say pretty bad. Phineas pinned Wyndham with an inside cradle after Wyndham went for a suplex, but Henry interfered by kicking Wyndham in the leg. Uh, I've admitted that I love the new blackjacks and you've, Reminded us all if the word new is in their name, it ain't going to get over. No, but it, the did.
1: team, it the, didn't.
2: It didn't. But the team of, of John Bradshaw Layfield and, and Barry Windham, God dang, that feels like a couple of ass kickers from yesterday yeah, This should
1: have uh, worked. Nothing wrong with JBL and Barry together. Are you kidding me? But why give them the name that's, you know, 30 years ago? Right. It makes no sense. You're not taking any steps forward by going back in time and And recreating a name. Can we not be creative enough to put two extremely talented guys with a lot of uh, uh, the same background and DNA, for lack of a better term, from their Texas upbringing and their influences of Mulligan and Murdoch and all those cats? We got to saddle them with this shit? Are you kidding me? I just don't understand that logic. Why people continue to do that sometimes is beyond me.
2: Well, what's uh, interesting is when we go to the announce desk, we see that, as we said, it's a three-man team, Vince, yourself, and Jerry Lawler, and you're all wearing cowboy hats to go with the Canadian stampede theme. Right. And I think you started wearing yours at the beginning of this year, like Royal Rumble 97. So it's already sort of normal for you. Lawler has this massive cowboy hat on that basically covers his face. It's pretty (laughs) odd to see Vince wearing one. What did you think about, uh, the whole booth wearing cowboy hats for this show?
1: It was funny. Uh, and one of the reasons it was funny is because, uh, Vince didn't know what size hat he wore. So when they sent people out to get hats. They're guessing. So they figure, you know, an average man's hat would be like, you know, my, I have a fat head, so I wear a seven and three eighths. but you know, guys were, you know, like I know guys that wear eights. Seven and a half, seven three quarters, but seven one eighth, seven and a quarter, kind of the average, seven maybe a seven. So they got all these big ass hats because he's a big guy, and it it looked it was hilarious. It, that was one of the funniest. That was one of the best parts of the whole day was watching Vince try <laughs> on hats that were too big for him. You could have flipped that some bitch. like that. Those that, that thing those guys are doing now, where they they run they they karate kick this goddamn bottle cap thing. You could have done that with Vince's hat. It was fun. It was, it was spun Like a top. So they finally figured out that he wore like a six and seven eighths, which is a small hat size for an adult male. Uh, and, but it was just funnier than hell. And of course, Lawler just tried to go over the top with comedy. He got one of those big, the big, uh, foam hats. I think yeah. it was. Yeah. And, uh, he wore that and he was just proud of himself. He found a prop that was hideous and it was funny. So yeah, we did the hat thing and, and I continued my, my wearing of the hat. Cowboy, the reason, one of the things I used to have a pushback with the hats was Watts told me years ago, He said, God damn, man, the worst gimmick I ever got was this Cowboy Bill Watts thing. So, why is that? He said, well, you know, stereotypical. He's an Oklahoma guy. He's a cowboy. He said, I was raised in Oklahoma City. I don't, I never rode a horse. I never owned a hat. And it's true. Right. So, much like me, Vince Sr. stereotyped Watts as cowboy Bill Watts. And then Vincent uh, K. McMahon stereotyped me as another Okie who has to wear a hat. So, we, th- there's that deal. But the Watson's deal was, here's what alienated me from the hat business for a while, not long, but, and not anymore. Of course, was that it's a pain in the ass to carry with you on the road. cause he was self-conscious about it. He didn't want to wear it. So it had, he had that had thing like Randy Savage had those little hat carriers that you bring on the plane. I thought this is crazy. You got a goddamn carry on. You got a briefcase. And now you got a hat carrier. What the hell's wrong with us? So I, uh, started wearing my hat and then it became now, not when I leave the house, it's, I put my hat on I'm off the airport. So it's just, uh, it's normal procedure now, but it wasn't then, but it was just funnier than hell. Vincent, a hat is hilarious.
2: Can we get you in a, in like a blue cowboy hat for blue chew?
1: No, well, well, I, I,
2: well I'm just wondering, like,
1: I got, I got to protect my image.
2: I'm wondering like um you you saw the old Sylvester Stallone movie over the top, right? He turns the hat around and now that means oh that's your ass. Well what if you yep. took the black hat off, put the blue hat on, and that's the way you gave the ladies like a heads up about what's coming.
1: Huh. That's interesting.
2: Yeah, let's think about that. Let's also think about mankind and Hunter Hurst Helmsley going to a double count out, thirteen minutes, fourteen seconds, while Helmsley's in the ring waiting on mankind. They're showing highlights of their king of the ring match. Um this is a, a pretty fun match and we're telling a story. Of course, we know what happened at the King of the Ring, where Hunter wins but then still attacks mankind after the fact. Uh and then we know that we're gonna get to uh SummerSlam with these guys in a cage match. So this is a nice way of sort of continuing the feud. I I think this era of mankind is very underrated. It's a fun match. There's lots of violence in here that maybe people don't talk about, but cactus taking these, or mankind rather, taking these Spots into the stairs and things like that. Just sickening three stars. Uh, I, I would have liked to have seen a different, you know, result. Not maybe, not a double count out, but I understand yeah. why it happens because we're building to the cage match at SummerSlam. what did you think?
1: I thought that the non-finish was non was none was unnecessary. Uh, you got to figure out a way to get, a, you got to be creative enough as a team to give the fans a winner or a loser. And not via disqualification or count out. That's my take on it. I thought that uh Paul Levesque, I'm sure that he does, uh, if he were if he were asked, owes a massive debt of gratitude to Mick Foley for helping him get Triple H over. And he got over because of look, they had great chemistry and they had great performances, and their matches are very physical. The fact that Mick Foley's image of being a hardcore legend, uh, physical guy. And then you had the aristocrat, former aristocrat, the blue blood guy showing that he's a tough son of a bitch because he hung with the crazy mankind, uh, and beyond, uh, that, that you'll never, you you'll never probably get the conversation and, uh, and discuss the fact that how did Mick, Foley, how did Triple H get over in his journey to where he is now, and where he started, and where I signed into a million-dollar downside contract on an anvil case in the back of the Evansville, Indiana arena, how did he get to where he is now? Well, on that journey was a some very important stops in Foley Town, and that established Triple H as a big-time player who's much tougher than his original. TV persona would indicate
2: let's, uh, we get to the next match. Uh, this is going to be a good one. Uh, but before we do, we go to a backstage interview with doc Hendricks. He's got the heart foundation and just uh, a few seconds into this interview. Austin tries to attack him, but he's being held back at the time by a 56 year old Pat Patterson and a 50 year old Tony Grea. Yeah.
1: I didn't like that. And I didn't if- like that. I remember Meltzer's deal. Right. Now, look, I, Dave's a friend of mine, and I have all the respect in the world for him. He's one of the brightest guys I've ever, been, I've ever talked to in wrestling. I just... Maybe he wouldn't write this, this way today. You've got to remember, it was a long time ago, folks. Right. Uh, but it's basically saying it's embarrassing that WWE put two old guys to hold Austin back It didn't do Austin's character any favors. That's what, that, to me, that's what he's uh, suggesting. And I didn't I don't think that's necessary. And maybe you said, well, JR's because you're, you're a no fucker. Yeah, I am. I am. You're right. But it just doesn't make sense. Why to why to categorize somebody by their age and uh, yes, you're right, folks, if you're thinking this, well, JR is more sensitive about it because he's getting older. Of course I am sensitive sure. about it. Sure. Why wouldn't I be? Are you crazy? You know, when you're told you're too old to hunt and you're and you're turned loose. You you don't you know then then you sure you got you got something to prove and you and you, I'm not too old to hunt bullshit listen to me listen I'll show you going forward and when that goddamn show starts in October and we're on every every other every I think I don't know what once a week prime time you're gonna hear a whole different ballgame because there's a different skill set involved in creating episodic commentary for a pro wrestling event and you'll hear it very good there and you'll hear it going along, like in, in Chicago, but I, I just, I, I believe that, uh, you know, the, that they, those two cats had amazing chemistry and they, the, the I, I can't ever remember triple H and Mick Foley not having an, a great, a solid to great outing ever. They just had it. And I, and as much as we could get of it, we got it because we damn sure booked it enough.
2: Well, they're going to come back out during the next match as they're doing ring introductions for the next match. Helmsley and mankind come back out and they're brawling around with Helmsley covered in blood. And because of that, uh, Meltzer says it's sort of hard for the guys to get anything going in the ring. It's great. Sasuke and Takamichi Noku. Um, I have to admit, uh, I, as a kid just reading this, cause I read about uh great Sasuke before I ever saw him, I pronounced it totally different than even you did. And. Of course, there's lots of commentary about that. And Meltzer would even say from an announcing standpoint in this match, both McMahon and Lawler were out to lunch and Ross, who everyone would figure would have to carry it, was not anywhere close to the level of Joey styles In a similar situation when it came to understanding the psychology of what they were doing. Let alone
1: that's bullshit. Here's the thing about that. Did I mispronounce the names? I, I could have, I probably did. I went by what I was told before we went out there. It's not as if I was so arrogant that I didn't give a shit about commentating uh, this matchup. Guess who was in charge of talent relations that were bringing these guys in?
2: I would guess it's uh,
1: Jim Ross. That could be right. So bullshit about not respecting the Japanese and all that stuff. That's so hideous. Uh, and but for Dave to say I didn't understand the psychology is offensive. It's not accurate. So some of the fundamental things, and some of the here's another thing is one of my little pet peeves, and I got to get over it. I get it, folks. I get it. Okay, to chill. I am not a big. I have issues sometimes with holes that I have known as certain by certain names for years, that because they have a little uh, tweak or an, an addendum. Or they're done by a certain guy. Now that same move has to have an entirely different name, or you're an idiot, right? So uh, I have a problem with that a little bit, quite frankly. And I am sensitive about my own stuff, and egocentric. I get that too. I'm, at least I'm honest on this damn show. Not a lot of guys, none of Conrad's partners have been mentioned, but <clears throat> <didn't mind. laughs>
2: hey, Tony Schiavone is honest as the day is long. I wasn't talking
1: uh, well what about never mind. Yeah. Here we go. Here right. we go. And three, two, uh but that's where we were. I just uh, I, uh, I I I understand the psychology of a pro wrestling match. I get it. The psychology is to win. Break it down to where everybody can understand it. And you can't broadcast to the very upper echelon of smart fans. I'm sorry, smart fans. That doesn't work. You got to go to the lowest common denominator and factor up as best you can. And that's kind of where I am on that subject, Conrad. I could get a little pissed off about that. I like it.
2: Pissed off JR is good for business. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hey, so Sasuke gets the win here. Uh, We should mention that these guys have a home promotion, Michinoku Pro. uh, Right. And you guys have brought them over here. Uh, it is, uh, it's not the big company in Japan. It's not the second biggest company, arguably not even the third, but they're sort of like the little engine that could in Japan, yeah. lots of high, sp- high flying, spectacular moves. This is no, n- n- nothing different here. Four stars here in this match, according to the observer, uh, lots of spectacular maneuvers go out of your way to see it. Uh, it's, it's a solid match for the undercard here.
1: Very good. It's a very good match. And if I raped it for you, I'll f- I apologize. Uh, I think when you listen to it, you'll probably not say, "Well, well that wasn't, wasn't that bad," but you got to consider the sources here. And uh, you know, Dave for years has sung the, uh, has hung, has carried the flag for uh, Japanese wrestling. And I don't say that as, a, as being a dick; it's just a fact. So he's very uh, defense defensive of it sometimes, and I try to learn. I'm trying. I try to learn about it, but. You know, Victor Kionis was there then he was our contact or my point guy for that, you know, you go to him and I even went to, like I said, I went to Sasaki and I said, what's your, how do you want me to pronounce your name? He told me and that's what I did. So sorry folks. That's how that worked out. It wasn't that, there's no conspiracy. It's just, I went with what I had. I dance with who brung me.
2: Sasuke gets the win. Uh, Lots of spectacular maneuvers here. Uh, a thunder fire power bomb, and then a finish with a tiger suplex, lots of crazy moves. You should go out of your way to see this one. They don't have a ton of time in 10 minutes, but they action packed the whole thing. And I guess this is, uh, sort of what WCW has been trying to do with their cruiserweight division on nitro. Uh, but this is really one of the first times that you guys had a match like this. Uh, a couple of months prior to this, we saw both of these guys, uh, at the barely legal pay-per-view, uh, for ECW. When did Vince sort of come around to his thinking of, Hey, we need, we need to do what, and maybe this is not the way to say it, but a lot of fans thought, Oh, they're trying to do what WCW is doing, you know, with the cruiserweights. When did Vince start to think, okay, maybe you don't have to be 350 pounds. There's a spot for this.
1: Well, the, the thing about that is that Vince, uh, never really told us to replicate anybody else's wrestling. Uh the there were guys in important positions in WWE that time that understood wrestling, that understood pro have great product knowledge. Guys like Patterson and Briscoe and Bruce, uh, you know, they were on the, they were in, involved in a especially in Bruce's world, a creative side, but they were involved in a, in a high level creative stuff and and so we all shared, hey, did you see someone? So did you watch that show the other day? Hey, take a look at this. And we had the with it all to get people to burn us DVDs or, you know, to email a file. And we could watch it on our computer. We were all fans. That's what, that's what I think that's going to help make us successful back in those days. We were all fans, and we enjoyed doing what we did, and we enjoyed watching all kinds of wrestling. We were wrestling fans, folks. We weren't just WWE fans. I was a big, big fan of WWE. You know why? They paid me. And they paid me well. But I I was always, most underlying, a wrestling fan. So when somebody would throw me a tape or a DVD or whatever to look at, I did. More often than not. So uh, that's kind of where we were there. I, I, I just think that. We all discovered there's some cool stuff out there. We got a chance to get these kids from Michinoku Pro, owned by the great Sasaki, or whatever his name is this week, folks. Uh, and we, they were highly skilled. They were low maintenance. They were affordable. And at the end of the day, bell to bell, they were really, really good. So that's kind of how we pitched the to Vince. Is just going to add some stuff to our show, and uh, and Vince loved the fact that occasionally uh, he could book or could facilitate booking the Let Me Up match. Have you ever heard Bruce talk about that, Conrad? No. The Let Me Up match. It's generally a match that follows something that you perceive is going to be heavy, a strong angle, and then when that's over, son. And here's the problem: years ago. It was almost exclusively a a women's match.
2: Yeah, a lot of people call it the popcorn match.
1: Yeah, that too. Let me up. So we thought, if nothing else, we could slip this by, get it in front of the live audience as a let me up match. And the fans would hopefully react to what they're seeing in a positive way. And we could continue on to uh, expand our horizons on what we presented. So he was, he was cool with that.
2: What happened with Sasuke? You know, he only has two shots here. I think a lot of people expected him to be uh, a part of the uh, light heavyweight championship tournament that you guys were going to do. And it seems like he's being pushed as, you know, the, the key star. So a lot of people jump to the conclusion that he's probably going to be the winner of the tournament. But instead you guys do a rematch with these guys the next night on raw and that's it. He's out of here. Uh, was the original plan for him to be around for more, or was it always supposed to just be a two shot deal? And taco was the man.
1: I think he was going to be around a little longer. Uh, he owned his company. He was the CEO of his company. He had a lot of, uh, he wore a lot of hats. He wore a lot of masks in this case, perhaps. Uh, and it just, when we got to have a meeting about who wins and loses and how they win or how they lose, it gets too muddled. For a act that is not of a main event level for us, right? Uh, and maybe in Japan or another company or whatever, uh, his concerns would be more would be more heavily weighed. They were not with us. It was never going to be more than a pre, uh, upper preliminary thing, semi main if they're lucky. type scenario. And with that, you have to eliminate all the baggage that you can, because it's just not worth the, the, the it, like I say, you know, you, you can't, uh, I don't pack negatives in my carry on anymore, eliminate as much of the negativity that you can and having to negotiate with a guy like, like great Sasaki. He was a businessman sure. and, a hell, and a hell of a hand, but he didn't have a lot of leverage cause his boys were Taka and all those guys we brought over. Could make a lot more money working for us and working for him, and the fact that we're talking Michinoku was his name. the The organization was Michinoku Pro Wrestling. Uh, So it, you know, it made it, he got a little win out of it, but we could not do business with him under that situation. It was not acrimonious. It was not a big pissing contest. It just wasn't going to work for him, and therefore, it was not going to work for us. So we decided to move on our, on our, our merry way. Let's talk about the uh,
2: next match. But before we do, we go backstage and we see mankind and Hunter Hearst Helmsley still fighting, uh, Helmsley's whipping mankind in the kegs of beer, breaking a shovel over his back. And then we go backstage for an interview with Doc Hendricks and he's with, uh, Paul bearer and they're going to show highlights of Vader undertaker at the Royal rumble to get ready for our next match, which is indeed Vader undertaker. So undertaker is your world champ. But he's not in the last match on the show. Uh, He's working with Vader instead. They go 12 minutes, 39 seconds. Meltzer would say it was good, but not great. Ultimately, he liked it pretty well, though. He gave it uh, three and a quarter stars. Uh, He chokeslams Vader off the ropes for a near fall. Gets another chokeslam for another near fall. And finally, hits the tombstone on Vader's big ass. And that's all she wrote. What would you think? (laughs) Uh,
1: Fair to Midland. As they say in Oklahoma, uh, fair. It wasn't great, wasn't bad. Didn't didn't bother me to watch it back to today. Uh, it wasn't the original
2: plan. We should tell everybody the original plan is Undertaker defending against the newly heel Ahmed Johnson. Of course, yeah. Ahmed Johnson has been a babyface his entire run, but now he's decided uh, to become a bad guy, and he, he winds up getting himself injured in a street fight with the nation of domination and the doa on the june 23rd raw so he's out four to six weeks but this would have been i think ahmed's only world title shot certainly his only world title shot on pay-per-view and it was actually a uh, talk of making the nation according to Meltzer, uh, baby faces but since ahmed was getting so much heat at the house shows they just dropped those ideas and decided uh, that that wasn't going to uh to work and they're going to just continue with this heavy racial gimmick for the nation, at least for now. And Ahmed Johnson, allegedly, according to the Observer, was campaigning not to turn heel. He wanted to come back as a baby face. What can you tell us about the original plan of Undertaker Ahmed, a heel Ahmed? What's rumor? What's innuendo? What's real?
1: What a soap opera that Ahmed Johnson stuff was and has been. We talked about that a little bit here on the show. Tony. Norris Ahmed Johnson was just in my opinion, not ready for prime time. He was, uh, he was not socially developed. He trusted no one. He gave the R that he was dangerous. And when you give your body to somebody, the last emotion you want to think you've elicited Is to be nervous because you got my ass in your hands. There's some issues there with that. Uh, I think we dodged a giant bullet by that, by the undertaker and Ahmed for the title not happening. I don't think it would have been a very good match. Yeah. And I can guarantee you that even though Taker had a massive, huge challenge on his hands. To get to pull something out of Leon at that stage of Leon's career, God bless him. That's a whole lot better road to travel than trying to have a, a a strong match with a very green talent who had never been a heel. So why we would even think of putting a brand new heel, Ahmed Johnson, against a franchise babyface, The Undertaker, is also a head scratcher to be nice. So I, I, uh, I think we dodged a bullet there with Ahmed, not having a match to take taker, taker, pulled out what he could with, 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 uh, Leon, big van Vader, and, uh, was a match a, you know, what the four or five star classic or whatever the hell it may be. It was a solid match. That was good, not great, but good. And that's about the size of it.
2: Let's talk about, uh, the 10 man, but before we do, I guess we should sort of set the stage. Um, the original plan is, uh, you know, five heart foundation guys on one side and on the other side, according to the rumor and innuendo supposed to be Shawn Michaels, Steve Austin, psycho Sid and the Legion of doom. Yeah. Now things change. Of course, Sean walks out. So shamrock is in. Uh Gold Dust is is tagged to replace Sid because Sid was in the car accident. So the match looks a whole hell of a lot different than maybe it did once upon a time. Uh but on June 9th, Austin is going to accept the challenge from Bret Hart because Brett is going to say, you know, I want to challenge the five best American wrestlers to take on the Hart Foundation at the next pay-per-view. Austin accepts. And we're off to the races, lots of interference, lots of run-ins and slowly it's revealed who these guys are going to be. It's, uh, I guess we should also mention that mankind comes in and interferes in some of this too. And at the close of one of these draws, Austin is sort of looking at mankind. Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, well, he was toyed around with the idea of being in this match. Why, why did you guys decide, Hey, we're not going to go with mankind. We're going to use gold dust instead.
1: We thought Goldust had enough equity in him to, uh, be a good fifth guy. He's not the first guy on the roster. He's a, he kind of a fourth or fifth guy, depending on your own perspective. Uh, and we needed Mick to continue. We really had a commitment to build triple H, right? Uh, he good talker, smart psychologist, good, great. Look,
0: hi there.
1: So we've made a commitment to build him and it was the right commitment to make. I wholeheartedly agree with it, but you know, Mick had started something there and we saw that of all the guys that we could book triple H with that on top, that would give him the, the proper rub. Mick Foley was the guy because they had obviously had great chemistry and you can't manufacture that. You can't say, okay, let's, let's go sit in a room now and talk about our chemistry. It just it didn't work that way, it just doesn't work that way. So uh, we wanted to fulfill our commitment to Triple H's build. Mick was the right guy. We thought Goldust could take out the slack, and because uh, uh, the one thing about Dustin, he's a hell of a hand. As the folks saw in his match he had with Cody at uh, in Vegas, he lost the damn thing. That was as emotional and as physical and logical a match as I've seen in years. Maybe the match of the year. I mean, so far
2: it's, it's gotta be, um, a contender. I think Meltzer gave it five stars and we know he's going to give one hell of a rating to this match, but before we ring the bell, we've got the three women group from the farmer's daughter performing the Canadian national anthem. Oh, Canada. You guys are really hammering a Canadian theme here. Uh, the crowd is ripe for it. And I love that. We've got Howard Finkel doing the ring introductions. a touch of old school. Brings so me back. he's wearing a cowboy hat. Uh, but before he introduces the wrestlers, he introduces a lot of folks, including, uh, the, uh, premier of the province of Alberta and, uh, Stu and Helen Hart, huge reaction. Um, people are primed for our they didn't even,
1: event. They didn't even, Conrad. They didn't even blew the politician, which is rare. they always boo the politician, always blew the politician, but they didn't boo this yet, this cat. So it was good. Uh, What you said there about Howard, glad you talked, you brought that up because I was going to bring it up too. Howard announcing that match just put everything right. The ring announcer can be always be a bigger part. Look, Michael Buffer's made millions of being announcing one match. For example, uh, the ring announcer plays a much bigger part in a combat sport presentation than given credit for. And Howard was the voice. Howard was, I I know I'm the right channel. This is the right guy. Howard was great. And I so loved, uh, listen to him again on the show, uh, Canadian stampede today on it before we started recording. It just was perfect. It was, it is, it is serendipitous. That's you use that word earlier. It, it really was. This was serendipitous. That it was perfect. And I, I felt so good that I, if no other reason to go back and watch Canadian Stampede, watch the sparkle in his eye and the hat on his head of Howard Finkel in the perfect element for a wrestling fan uh, turned most famous ring announcer in pro wrestling of all time. Great stuff, boy. That's Americana right there.
2: I want to encourage you to go back and watch the ring introductions this week. I mean, you should watch the whole match, but you've got to see these ring introductions. The crowd is so into everything that happens as the heels come out, monstrous booze, as the baby faces come out, a thunderous ovation, each one louder than the, than the previous. It's just unbelievable heat here before they even touch. And then once they do, the crowd is all over everything that Brett and Austin are doing. Um, a tremendous match. Uh, and then I guess we should mention eventually, uh, there's a little bit of involvement with the Hart family in the front row <laughs> and, uh, that, that gets a huge reaction Four and a quarter stars is the rating in the observer. Uh, I think they've got it wrong on this one. I know we, you know, sometimes it's a debate. Oh, that doesn't really matter. That's just a guy's opinion. Well, my opinion is this is five stars as it gets. The crowd is all
1: over it. What'd you think? Oh yeah. Uh, it couldn't be any better. Could the announcers have been better, which I was a part of sure. We could have, it wasn't bad. And what we did, our narrative was, I think I thought accurate. The presentation was a masterpiece. Uh, if Pat Patterson was not in the hall of fame, that organizing and babysitting that 10 man match would get him there. In my view, it was an amazing accomplishment by everybody. Uh, Conrad and because again everybody wants to get something positive of their game in and they also then they want to budget their selling and it's, it's really tough man is it those 10-man tags it's like my, my least favorite match in wrestling is a battle royal you know why because so goddamn many of them Uh, play grab bass. They couldn't break an egg with their shots because they're having, they're taking a match off because if they're not winning, it don't matter. They think that them being eliminated will be lost in the shuffle. Therefore, what it results in is a shitty presentation. More often than not, you tell me how many great battle royals you've seen. Have you seen a hundred? No. No, if you saw a hundred battle roles in general, how many how many great ones do you think you'd see maybe 5%? Yeah. Five or 10. Yeah. Nothing harder. So that's kind of what I thought about that. I, but those guys, these guys gave up of themselves. They sold, uh, there was a lot of unique things that went on in that match. It's hard to develop any continuity and to separate somebody from the herd. When you get so many guys involved in the process. So it's almost a no-win situation with these ten-man tags, where you don't want to bury anybody or bury whatever, whatever that means. It's subjective as well, but you don't want to do this walk over somebody and disregard them. So they're hard to lay out. If for Pat Patterson and whomever else helped him, they will also they will always deserve an Attaboy.
2: No argument for me. Go out of your way to watch this one. Of course, we know the finish it's, uh, it's the heart foundation and, uh, they're going to bring the whole family in the ring afterwards. And
1: well, there's a couple of things. Did you read about it? Brett has some great comments about this match in his book. And until I read it, I didn't realize that his brother, Bruce Hart, uh, really cheap shot at Austin with a couple of hard shots to the kidneys. And this ain't no bullshit. You, you can see it clear as day. And I, I would not have seen it and, and recognized it if Brett had not written about it in his book.
2: Yeah. Let me, let me get to, uh, what Brett wrote here. Um, he says that, uh, there was no doubt. This is the loudest pop I'd ever heard. We touched a nerve across Canada, but the fans in Calgary, it went much deeper than that they'd grown up with and stood by Stu's old stampede crew for decades of highs and lows. And now we're squarely on top of the business, and all of us are like brothers. And the fans were here really to thank all of us, especially Stu. And uh there's just a sea of Canadian flags. And uh once the bell rings, man, they're just off to the races. Um, he says, when he rolled Owen back into the ring, Bruce threw a drink at Stone Cold's back, and when Austin turned around uh and jerked Stu to his feet by his lapels, the Hart brothers swarmed. Stone cold, just in time, 19,000 screaming fans were about to do the same thing. And Bruce was so mad. He throws a couple of shots at Austin. And, um, I guess we should mention what you're talking about specifically is, uh, once Brett is involved with stone cold, Bruce slams a fist as hard as he can into stone colds kidneys and Austin manages to pull himself up only to be schoolboyed from behind by Owen. And you can see that is a legitimate (laughs) shot. And, uh, it was what Brett would call an unscripted comeback. And yeah, uh, yeah.
1: Well, Bruce wanted to get more involved than he needed to in this deal. This wasn't about him
2: and Owen, uh, Brett would write. Owen was furious at Bruce for stealing his big pop. Still the saddle dome came unglued as the pay-per-view closed with Austin being wrestled down by various hearts, brothers, agents, referees, and uh keystone cop like security and,
1: and, guards. And Conrad, excuse me again, but go back and watch folks the end of this match after the one, two, three, and look at some of the Owens facial expressions. He can't, and this is me and I'm paraphrasing and i assuming he can't believe that his brother Bruce stole Owens thunder Yeah, in Owens point of view. So, uh, it was very unique. That whole dichotomy of that presentation at that point forward was very, very strange because, you know, you got, you got Hart brothers jumping the rail. You got guys throwing potatoes. Uh, you got guys that are trying to get in on the act, get the proverbial hot tag if they can. It was a real dicey situation that, uh, that I personally had not creatively prepared for. Of course, again, I didn't ask anybody what was going to happen. Uh, you know, I didn't care who won the match, what, what does it make? Well, it was great and we can make it better. Uh, it didn't matter. So that, that was kind of how that, I didn't have a clue what was going on, but, uh, when I got now reading Brett's book these excerpts, of this book and preparing for the show with Conrad folks, as you go back and look at it, there's a whole nother story to be told. There's a whole nother realization, uh, to, to embrace after the match was over. It, 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 another, another story extended big time. And it was a uh, very, very unique. So, When you go back and watch it, I wholeheartedly suggest that you do. Hey, look, if nothing else, you invest about 30 minutes of your day because the match is about 24, 25 minutes. And then you got about five minutes post match. You got 30 minutes that you could get a great wrestling education on psychology and uh, a little bit of strategic skullduggery, quite frankly.
2: Let me recommend too that you go back and watch Wrestling with Shadows because, believe it or not, Vince McMahon had greenlit a camera crew backstage during the WWF's pay per views and house shows and things like that. So, Paul J actually captures them putting this match together, and uh, you can sort of see how they're laying it out with uh, Pat Patterson and some of the proposed ideas and then the execution. It's one of the only times that something like that happened in that era. So, if you enjoyed this match and you're looking for something else, you know, to sort of dig up on it, go back and watch wrestling with shadows because there's some good stuff in there. And the next night on raw, of course, uh, it's another sellout or it certainly feels like it. 9,500 fans are there. Uh, it's probably the largest event ever for a raw taping, uh, at least in this market and, um, he's coming to the ring, he being Brett wearing an Edmonton Oilers Jersey. The crowd is still white hot.
1: A guy told me Conrad that night when the show was over, somebody that worked at the arena there in Edmonton where the Eskimos play, uh, Edmonton orders in hockey, Eskimos and football where Stu played, but they said that the entrance that Brett had in Edmonton would have rivaled anything they'd ever heard from Wayne Gretzky, who played in that same arena for many years in the NHL. Now that's a hell of a compliment. That's a pop.
2: We should mention that when he's out here in his Oilers jersey with this huge reaction, he's going to cut a hell of a promo where he's going to promise fans that he'll defeat the Undertaker at SummerSlam and become the WWF champion for a fifth time. And the only other person who had done that uh, at least at this point, is Hulk Hogan. Uh, and the crowd is ready for that. And so we have our main event for SummerSlam squared away. And of course, we know along the way, uh, we're going to find out that there's a special guest referee there. But that's a story for another time. Uh, but Brett has written, you know, and told everybody that the happiest time of his career was 1997, getting to work with the Hart Foundation. And this show sort of in, tells the whole story of that entire run. It's one of the best pay-per-views in company history. And, uh, as we passed the anniversary for this a couple of weeks ago, you saw everyone chiming in about that, whether it was Steve Austin or Dave Meltzer, it's unanimously one of the most beloved pay-per-view shows of all time,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt, just watch it and try to think where you can replicate or compare the same passion to anything that happened lately. And you'll you'll continue to look. It was a special night with special talents. And the sad part about some of this is that if you exclude politics and personalities from this very egocentric equation, you see how great it could have been. Because in one entity, you made yourself five viable heels. Brett Nolan. Owen. The Anvil, Davy Boy, and Brian Pillman. Five viable main event level heels were being developed in this entity. And how many times have we seen lately in any company where that opportunity has presented itself? And as a result of these politics and rumor and innuendo, so forth and so on, Uh, what do we get? You got heartbreak and you got unfortunate, unfortunate occurrences that did not necessarily have to be there whatsoever. It's sad to where, what, where it ended up. It's exciting to be a part of that year. It's the most fun I ever had in my life in 97, great wrestling. And, but you know, you gotta, gotta say what the truth is. Egos and politics screwed up a damn good deal, and it could have really launched the WWE into an even higher level as the attitude era started to progress. The nationalism angle. Hey, look, I recently watched the United States women win a world title in soccer. Is it because I'm a big soccer fan or a football fan? No. It's because I am a nationalist. And I'm an American who supports American successes and challenges and triumphs and losses. And that's what I saw in that situation. A great nationalism angle where nothing like it ever happened before. You come back to Des Moines or Oklahoma city and the hearts are, are, are mortal enemies, you go to London or to Germany or to South Africa. The hearts are major, fa- uh, baby faces, fan favorites. It's the damnedest thing we ever saw and how we screwed that up <laughs> is a goddamn sad commentary on pro wrestling. It can't be that complicated.
2: Well, we like to think that enjoying our show is not complicated and we appreciate you guys joining us here for a trip down memory lane. As we revisit Canadian stampede from July of 1997, tell everybody check out grill and jr on the mighty westwood one every thursday at 6 a.m eastern until next week we'll see you around
0: hey everybody this is dan bespris host of fantasy nba today a daily fantasy basketball podcast we cover every box score from every game every day